0: Thank you so much, Keith. Um, this is an absolute joy to be here with you, so thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, it's humbling as well, uh, knowing that uh, uh, those who teach are held to a stricter judgment. So I have um, been trusting that uh, God will use these words, and I have spent time to faithfully understand the scripture so that you can be edified from it. So. Um, We love this church. We love each uh, one of you. And we hope that this is just the beginning of a long relationship together of work in Uganda. Uh, Would you pray with me before we start? Father, we are um, so full already of um, love for you, of worship. Um, Father, we have room for more, though. Uh, I pray that you would feed us now from your word. I pray that. You would open uh, ears here, even tonight, to hear and see the gospel for the first time. Pray, Father, for uh, the believers here. I pray that you would build them up. I pray that you would use um, this body um, to spread the gospel. I um, pray, Father, that you would make these, uh, make each of us faithful in the task you've given. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you would, uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So this afternoon, we want to answer the question what kind of person does God use to build his church? What kind of person does God use to build his church? Who does God choose to accomplish his purposes? Does he choose the most eloquent, educated um, people? Or does he have different qualifications? Who does he choose? And then once he chooses a man or a woman, how does he use him or her to proclaim the gospel? Who does he choose and how does he use that man or woman? Well, our passage today... 2nd Corinthians 4 reveals that God's strategy for building his church is entirely different than what you and I would have come up with, and it's quite unexpected. Rather than choosing his servants from the cream of the crop, uh, he takes us from the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> at least in the world's eyes. Paul's teaching here in 2nd Corinthians 4 is autobiographical, so he's teaching about himself. And before I read this, let me explain just a little bit of context. So a major theme of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his apostleship. Uh, By the time Paul had left Corinthians, some false teachers had come in and were questioning. Uh, they uh, They were attacking Paul as a true apostle of the gospel to the Corinthian church. Okay, they were trying to discredit his authority. And one of their charges against Paul was that he was weak in bodily form and that his speech was not eloquent he was common and um and you see that in 2 Corinthians 10:10 10, 10. his speech was contemptible they would say they scoff at his words they would say something like how could Paul be a true minister of the gospel if he's so physically underwhelming and his speech has no sophistication how can he be a true gospel He's not, he wasn't impressive in the world's eyes, whereas these false teachers were propping themselves up. They were masters in uh, oratory and philosophy, and, and they were saying that we are true ministers of the gospel because of our uh, wisdom, worldly wisdom as it is. Well, Paul's response in the book of 2 Corinthians is unexpected, and it's hope-giving for you and I, because we have the same weaknesses that Paul So as we see in our passage today, rather than denying these charges of weakness, Paul rather embraced them actually as a qualification for a true minister of the gospel. So uh, with that as our background, let's read our text today. I want to start all the way in verse 1 and read through verse 12, paying special attention to verses 7 through 12. So verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always. Caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. So in verses 7 to 12, Paul shows us God's plan for building his church with three unexpected components. You'll see these on your outline there. Paul uses unexpected messengers using unexpected means to make an unexpected impact. And that's the outline we'll follow as we walk through these verses from 7 to 12. So look with me now at verse 7 as we consider the unexpected messengers that God uses to build his church. And it's right there. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul is saying that his messengers, God's messengers, are earthen vessels. God chooses common, ordinary vessels to store the treasure. But before we talk more about the messengers, we have to talk about the message. What is the treasure that Paul's talking about in verse seven? Because if we know what an earthen vessel is, just a common clay pot. But to understand the difference, to understand the unexpectedness of God, we need to know the treasure that He's talking about in verse seven. Paul, when he's talking about verse seven, is referring is referring back to verse six. The treasure is the light which has shone in our hearts. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It points back to verse 4 as well, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, in other words, very simply, the light, the treasure that we have, is the gospel of grace for sinners in Christ. Very simply. And it's impossible to overestimate the value of the saving gospel, is it not? To put a monetary value on it is impossible. If you, if you had to purchase Christ, if you had to purchase the gospel with money, what possible value could, would you put on it? Um, if you had the option of purchasing forgiveness of sins, being betrothed to Christ and adopted by our Heavenly Father, is there, is there any price you would put on that to purchase that And you remember those two parables that Christ explains, the the value of the gospel in monetary terms. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field, right? What does he do? With joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. And the man who finds the pearl of great price, he does the same thing. He sells everything with joy. Knowing that everything he owned, if he sold it and purchased this pearl... This pearl was worth way more than everything he owned. So it is the value of the gospel. And yet, God doesn't require payment from us for the gospel, right? Because of the great love that God has for you, he offers it free. Isaiah 55 says, come you who are weary. uh, Come who, uh, I'm sorry, come... um, Isaiah 55, I should just go there. I'm sorry, Isaiah 55. He says, come to the waters, you who are thirsty. That's what it is. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on that which does not satisfy? So God, in his grace and mercy, gives us the gospel Free of charge, though it's of immense value. So the question is, where does God store this treasure? Where does he put it? Because if you and I had a a treasure of this value, we would put it in some place like Fort Knox, would we not? We'd put as many locks on it as we could. We'd hide it um, as deep underground as we could. And yet, where does God put it? He has put it, verse 7, in earthen vessels. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this, earthen vessels are exactly what you would imagine them to be. Just a common, ordinary clay pot thrown into the kiln and hardened. Okay, it had no value. They were, they were inexpensive. They were easily replaceable. They, um, they, weren't even, they weren't even worth wasting your time to fix. If you had a glass jar, for example, at this time, uh, the glass jar would have been melted down and recast into a new vessel. But a clay pot... If it had been broken, it would have just been cast aside and pr- another one would have been purchased to replace it. Uh, it's, it's as if it, trying to replace, uh, trying to repair a clay pot is akin to us trying to patch a hole in a, a plastic straw, right? There's no point. Why would, you, why would you try to fix your plastic straw? Just throw it away and buy a new one. It's, it's of no value. But furthermore, clay pots had no attractive value. They were not... Wonderful to look at. These weren't the Grecian urns of the time overlaid with gold that you'd put on your centerpiece and uh, put on your table as a centerpiece. Okay, these were just common clay pots for common purposes. And this is exactly what Paul understood himself to be. He was a clay pot in the service of God. He was weak, common, replaceable, had no value, no beauty. To look at compared to all the other jars, as you were, of Grecian urns, of philosophers and athletes. He was of no value to look at. And yet, he was, quoting from Acts, God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this wasn't the first time that God used the runt of the litter, if you will. Consider these people. Moses... Had a speech impediment. Gideon and David were the youngest of their brothers. Solomon was young and inexperienced. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth was a Moabite. Jeremiah was too young. The disciples were uneducated fishermen. And Timothy was timid. These men and women that God has used throughout history were not the shiny objects, they were not paragons of society. And if you and I were selecting someone to be a representative of Christianity, we would not select any of these people. And God still works this way. Were you offended when, uh, when uh, Keith read Roman, uh, uh, Colossians, Sorry, 1 Corinthians 1? Were you offended? I hope not. 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world, and despise God has chosen. Okay, so just look around the room, right? The people whom God has chosen to be his servants are not in the world's eyes the strong ones, the wise ones, the eloquent ones, the educated ones. Rather, we, you, are weak despised, in the world's eyes, and foolish, Um, and and myself included. Over the last year and a half as we've been preparing for Uganda, uh, I, we, I have regularly battled fears of insecurity, fears of um, inadequacy, fears of weakness. Am I able to do this job in Uganda? And you just have to know, okay? you're not sending a super Christian over to Uganda. That's not, that's not us, and, and I'm sure I, I've never been accused of that. But, um, um, okay, we are, we are weak people, fraught with fear, and surely God could have found a more qualified person to go to Uganda. Surely there is someone with less fear, less insecurity, but for whatever reason, he has chosen us to go, but he hasn't left that reason up for question which we'll see here in just a second that's the question why does he choose such foolish people in the world's eyes such weak people why doesn't he choose the celebrities why are there not more Christians in the NBA okay why does he not choose the cream of the crop well keep reading in verse 7 so that a helpful phrase so that he has chosen earthen vessels so that The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's it. That's why. God chooses the weak, the common, and the foolish so that when spiritual fruit is born, somehow through this broken vessel, there's no question as to the source of the power. Uh, there's no question about where the spiritual life came from. It's all of God. He gets all the credit so that no one can boast. Were God to put this gospel treasure in a uh, eloquent person, a person of high st- stature, um, we, when we see fruit, fruit produced from that person, would be tempted to praise this person for how eloquent they are and, and in effect steal glory from God for the work that he does in our lives. So that, that's the unexpected messengers, uh, unexpected at least in our eyes, of the people that God chooses to bear his message. But Paul goes on to explain the unexpected means that he uses once he selects a person in verses 8 through 11. And we'll see the unexpected means here is that of suffering and affliction to build his church. Rather than taking a man or woman and prospering them, prospering their ministry, he subjects them to continual affliction. He does the opposite. So look with me now at verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In these two verses here, Paul describes what it's like to be a, a clay pot in the service of God, and it is a difficult life for Paul. It's painful. You'll notice the, the pattern here, the structure. Paul uses four pairs of antithetical words, okay? and, uh, opposites, paradoxes, if you will. And they grow in their severity, starting with affliction, ending with being struck down. These four pairs. Each pair contains one verb describing the adversity that Paul experienced, but then the phrase, but not, and then another verb explaining that his adversity was not final. It was not full. I just want to walk through these with you one at a time so you can see. The first pair is afflicted. Paul was afflicted in every way. Meaning pressed down, feeling pressure from all around. The ministry he experienced was a pressure ministry, a ministry of pressure and affliction constantly, day and night, without reprieve. And yet, but not crushed. It's amazing. The term not crushed means not without an escape route. He felt pressure from all around and yet was never confined in, was never restricted beyond bearing and it should remind us of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, right? That God does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But with the temptation, he provides a way of escape that we can endure it, continue enduring the pressure, though it never overwhelms us. He doesn't allow it to. Jesus said we go out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and yet somehow the sheep survive. How is that possible? Sheep in the midst of wolves? Wouldn't you think that the wolves would just... Um, take care of uh, the sheep in no time. But not so. And we'll see why in a second. Secondly, the second pair here is perplexed. Paul was perplexed. He's being honest here. Paul was discouraged. He was dis, uh, depressed at times. The ministry, the work of the ministry for Paul was um, discouraging when he would be abandoned by men who he thought were so faithful, when he would be Uh, Shipwrecked, whipped, stoned, you can expect it would be a discouraging ministry. And yet, not fully and finally uh, at a loss. He was perplexed, but not perplexed to the final degree. He was perplexed, but not despairing ultimately. Um, And so it is with you and I. But not only that, look at number three, that he was persecuted. Persecuted. This word means hunted. Uh, Paul was chased. He was, uh, it's like he was an animal uh, being hunted by, for sport uh, by his enemies. And uh, you remember, Paul had this firsthand knowledge, right? He would preach the gospel, and his enemies would run him out of town, and he'd go to the next city, uh, and his enemies would follow him from the town that he just left. He was hunted. He was a hunted man. But... Not forsaken, persecuted but not forsaken by God. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. And what a sweet promise you and I have from our Heavenly Father, right? When He says, Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And um, in the Great Commission, Christ said, uh, uh, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Though Paul was persecuted, Hunted from town to town. Um, He was never without God. Um, One of my favorite missionaries is is the Scottish missionary John Patton. Amazing autobiography if you have time to read him. Uh, John Patton went to the island of New Hebrides, the New Hebrides Islands, which was full of cannibals and basically had never been evangelized before. And he went with his newly married wife and his young child. I think the child was only a few weeks old when they landed. And within four months of arriving on the island, John Patton's wife and his only child died from uh, a fever. So John Patton is left alone on the island after only four months. And he clung to Matthew 28. He clung to the words of Christ when he said, I will be with you always. And that's how you and I can continue ministering, even when we're persecuted, abandoned, um, afflicted, that Christ never forsakes us. Finally, the fourth pair here is struck down. This is the climax that Paul has been reaching to of these four pairs. Struck down. This term refers to being thrown down or uh, laid low with a, a weapon or an illness. Um, being, being sent to the ground, as it were, but not destroyed. In boxing terms, this would be uh, Paul was knocked down but not knocked out. And again, Paul experienced this firsthand. you remember? After preaching to the, uh, the city of Lystra, they, his enemies drove him out of the city, uh, 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 stoned him, threw stones at him, left him for dead, and Paul survived miraculously. He rose up and went back into the city to preach the gospel. Also makes me think of uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, um, uh, one of the action-packed scenes when Christian is fighting Apollyon in the Valley of Humiliation. Do you remember this? And there's this um, uh, uh, battle between Apollyon and Christian. And Apollyon strikes Christian with a blow. And he falls to the ground. His sword is scattered and, and Apollyon stands over him to make a final end of Christian, to, to, to end him once and for all. And you remember what happens? Christian, at the very last moment, finds his sword, grabs it. He quotes Ma- uh, from Micah 7, and he s- thrusts it into Apollyon, uh, and Apollyon flees. Do you remember what Micah 7 says? <laughs> Do you want, remember that? Um, Micah 7, 8 amazing passage Micah 7 8 says do not rejoice over me O my enemy though I fall I will rise though I fall I will rise though I dwell in darkness the Lord is a light for me Christian knew the same thing that Paul knew from Romans 8 from 2nd Corinthians 4 that um, God does not abandon his people nothing can separate us from the love of God Not sword, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And this is the unshakable hope that we have as Christians. That though we are delivered over to death every day, as Paul says, we are not utterly forsaken by our Father. Though we may die, even die a martyr's death like Paul would a little bit later, Death only, ends in a res- only results in a reward for the Christian believer because it brings us home to Christ. No amount of affliction that you and I can experience would ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. So taken as a whole here, verses 8 and 9, Paul's point is that the life of a clay pot is one of continual suffering. Do you see that in verse 8? We are afflicted in every way, continual suffering. The clay pot is ever at the point of breaking, and yet it never does. As I mentioned, clay pots were worthless. They were known for being fragile and for breaking. And yet Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9 that he, this clay pot, was always being given over to affliction and persecution and yet never broke. The question is why does the pot not break such a weak vessel why does it not break when it's uh, when it's afflicted with every sort of opposition to uh, bring the analogy closer to home why is it that God's people never um, ultimately and finally fall away from God when we experience persecution for the name of Christ? Okay. The answer is given in verses 10 and 11, and I'll summarize it quickly for you. The reason that God allows his people to endure affliction without breaking is to display to the watching world the unshakable power of Christ inside the believer. Okay? Okay? when someone sees a pot suffering um, oppressively and yet not despairing, they know that that pot is being held together by something else. (laughs) We get 10 and 11 with me. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul makes it clear in these two parallel verses. Do you see how they're parallel? He restates the same thing in 11 that he said in 10. Paul makes it clear here that we, when we experience suffering, we are simply experiencing the same thing that Jesus experienced. When we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, when that happens to us, we are carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying there, in verses 10 and 11. That we are displaying the persecution of Christ in our lives when we are persecuted, Jesus would say, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. We should not be afraid or or surprised when we experience persecution. Because what Jesus' enemies did to him, they continue to do to his people. So, and you see the result here. This, This phrase is so helpful. So that, you see that? Verses 10 and 11, the second half. So that, in fact, the the, the phrases are almost identical. The reason that God allows his clay pots to endure so much suffering is so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body or in our mortal flesh. Okay, so sharing in the suffering that Christ suffered in and yet not being totally destroyed is what makes it clear to the watching world that we have the power of Christ living inside of us. That's what manifests the life of Christ. And the one cannot happen without the other. That is, the life of Christ cannot be manifested in us unless the death of Christ is first manifested. Okay, Meaning, the, uh, the, the, the power of Christ can't be seen in us unless we are first afflicted beyond what we would be able to bear were it not for Christ in us. To use the analogy of the, of the clay pot, it's almost as if the light inside the clay pot could not be seen uh, unless it were first fractured and cracked so that the light could pour out. And that's exactly what God is doing here. What does this look like in real life? Well, just some examples. It looks like Job uh, when he has lost everything and he's sitting in his ash heap scraping his boils with a clay pot and yet worshiping God. Okay? It looks like Stephen when Stephen is being stoned to death and he cries out, Forgive them. Uh, don't hold this against them. A uh, more modern example, it looks like Elizabeth Elliot when her husband uh, has been martyred. She goes back to the same people who, mar- who martyred her husband with the gospel message. Okay, the watching world sees that and they say, how on earth is that person not completely destroyed by the affliction that they are in? Um, and it's then that we have the opportunity to explain why we are not utterly destroyed. Okay? It is because we have Christ in us. Okay? We have a resurrection hope. There's hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond whatever affliction, and persecution, no matter how severe it is for you right now. now. This is the unexpected means that God has for building his church. You and I, if we were to plan how God were to build his church, we would take a man and prosper him and make him famous Uh, God's plan for building his church is to take a man from the bottom of the barrel and subject him to all sorts of affliction, persecution, and yet never forsake him. Hold him together, as it were, to prevent him from falling away. We see this in Peter, do we not? When Jesus said to Peter, Satan has uh, demanded to sift you like wheat, yet I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't that the only reason that Peter did not finally and fully fall away because Christ was praying for him? Well, um, having seen the uh, unexpected messengers and now the unexpected means, finally um, finally, we turn now to the unexpected impact of how God uses His people to build his church. And that's uh, in verse 12. It's kind of a summary statement that Paul makes for these verses. Verse 12, Paul concludes with, So death works in us, but life in you. Life in you. Paul concludes in a somewhat surprising way. Based on these previous verses, we might expect Paul to say, Death works in me, but life also works in me. Right? But instead he says, Death works in me, And life works in you. Paul explains that the afflictions that he was experiencing was actually producing spiritual life and growth inside of the Corinthians. Okay? Uh, God was using the persecuted life of Paul to bring new life, regenerating power to these Corinthian believers. And Paul understood that he was a sacrificial servant. For Christ, really just walking in the footsteps of his Savior, Christ, right? The ultimate sacrificial servant. Understanding this role of being a sacrificial servant helped Paul to endure uh, in his ministry. You remember in Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm not sure what I should do. I want that for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Should I stay here? Or should I go and be with Christ? If I go, it's very much better. <laughs> but if I stay... It means fruitful labor for you. And Paul understood that. His ministry was a sacrificial ministry for um, his brothers and sisters. Uh, So you and I are are challenged to continue ministering in uh, affliction for the purpose of bearing fruit in in our brothers and sisters, of seeing the power of God work uh, through us and those we're ministering to. Well, um, we've seen here from, from 2 Corinthians 4 the, the unexpected way that Paul, that God works to build his church by choosing people whom we would not choose. By, uh, by using them in a way we would not choose and sometimes don't want to be used. To have an impact that we would not have expected uh, for the growth of others. Uh, as we as we as I close here, let me um, let me just end with just one exhortation to you um, and one uh, encouragement. Uh, so my the exhortation to you comes in the form of a question, and uh, as it's been a pretty emotional time for us over the past uh, couple weeks, as we've been saying goodbye to lots of people, and we've just seen uh, just how important it is. Um, to not waste these opportunities that we've been given to to speak um, and to not speak about trivial things. And so the the exhortation I have, the question I have for you is, do you see the gospel or are you blind to the gospel? Do you have this treasure inside of you uh, or are you blind to it? And, um, and you may say, uh, yes, Dexter, I, I, think I, I think I have the gospel. I think I know it. Um, uh, eight, did you know 82% of Ugandans uh, uh, claim to be Christians? 82% of Ugandans claim to be Christians. Shocking. Uh, but Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So um, I just have a litmus test for you from this passage that I want to ask you. Look at verse 7. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I just just want to ask you, when you think about Christ, when you think about the gospel, would you use the word treasure? Okay, how precious is the gospel to you? How precious is Christ to you? Having having seen Christ, having tasted him, having known the gospel— Would you joyfully lose and leave everything for Christ if he required it of you? Um, I want you to hear these shocking words from Luke 14 um, that Christ had. This This is what Jesus said. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother or wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Paul uh, sorry, Jesus, uh, is not giving a mandate here for us to forsake all of our family and to sell everything we have. The question he's getting at, what he's poking at, is our treasure. What is your treasure? When things like possessions or even the closest of family members are put in opposition to Christ or obedience to Christ, what wins in your heart? Jesus said, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. So the question is for you, is Christ a treasure for you? Is, it, is he a treasure beyond surpassing value worthy of leaving everything for him? We are, we are not all called to sell everything and leave and go to a foreign country. But if he asks you to go, would you go? Or is there something in your life that you would say, No, um, I can serve Christ as long as I don't have to give up that thing. Um, I'll serve him. Well, uh, that question makes it clear uh, who your highest treasure is. A second question I just want to ask you from verse 7. Paul says in verse 7 uh, that we have this gospel in uh, jars of clay so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Okay, So the question I have for you is when you stand before God in judgment, whom will you credit for your salvation? Okay, When you look at your salvation, how God has saved you, how you are saved, Okay. who do you credit for that salvation? Paul is telling us here, the surpassing power has come from God. Uh, we, uh, Christians are those who say, nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to your cross I cling. So if you, uh, if you think that you have some credit for something you've done, if you have some, something to offer to God, some good work that you've brought to God, um you will be sorely uh, uh, mistaken on the day when you stand before God, and you stand before Christ, and he says, "Depart from me, I never knew you. God will not receive those who take a share in, the sa- in His saving work, right? Um, Titus 3:5 says that God has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy. That's what Paul is saying here, OK. If anyone is saved from the ministry of Paul, if anyone is saved from your ministry, it is nothing that you have done. It's nothing that the person has done. We were all blinded by the God of this age, back in verse 3, blinded. But um, there's good news, right? Today is the day of salvation. If you repent and believe today, if you, um, if you reject all of the treasure that you have uh, that you love more than Christ today, God will receive you. Christ will forgive you for all of your sins and adopt you as a son if you would but repent and believe in Christ. Well, finally, let me, let me end on, a, on an encouragement to you. Um, for those of you who do see the treasure, for those of you who do have the treasure of the gospel in you, uh, I just want to remind you that God delights in using the runt of the litter for his purposes, okay, if you feel weak and insecure, if you feel unqualified for something that Keith has asked you to do, (laughs) it's only because you are unqualified, right, you are weak, you are fraught with uh, frailty, okay, and you are uh, not fit for the task, none of us are, we are jars of clay, and yet you are exactly the type of person that God uses because When spiritual fruit is born from your service, your labor, uh, you, first and foremost, and everyone else knows that it's not you uh, that caused the growth to happen, right? And secondly, I just want to remind you uh, that God will never leave you or forsake you and that he is using your affliction. uh, He is using your affliction and your suffering for a purpose, that he is using you... Uh, to be a testimony to the watching world of the power of Christ. And he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never abandon you, even should you uh, die a martyr's death. So I hope that you were encouraged with these scriptures. Um, and, and Paul, to sum it all up, Paul says later in 2 Corinthians uh, that he would boast in his weakness, right? Because when we are weak, uh, God is strong. So would you pray with me? Father... You have delighted in using us. You've delighted for some reason to use me this afternoon to preach your word. Father, we know that you use weak and foolish people in the world's eyes to shame the strong. Father, would you use uh, this body here to um, make many disciples. Father, would you use uh, these men and women um, to produce much spiritual fruit, Father, would you continue to humble me, continue to humble this people here, uh, that they would not boast in their own strength, but that they would humbly look to you for their strength and their power when they are weak and afflicted. Father, I ask these things in Christ's name.